good to be together on this Lord's Day. Um, despite the elevated temperatures, it is good to be together and experience the warmth of fellowship as well as our corporate worship of Almighty God. I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. title of the message, and there is an outline in your bulletin if you received the bulletin, is, Have You Submitted to the Authority of Christ? Have You Submitted to the Authority of Christ? In our day, many reject authority on various different levels. You see it in the home, rebellious children sometimes, teenagers and so forth. You see it in public education and schools and so forth. Uh, in society in general, there's, there's, a, there's a, a resistance to submitting to the laws of the land and, and civil uh, expressions of that as well. And the military, superiors not being submitted to by those who are under them. And so you have court-martials and so forth uh, submitting to the military code of justice as you join and, and have to understand those laws. But just taking one of those and considering in the home a father is called to lead and to shepherd and nurture his children in every respect. And sometimes the father can delegate that to the mother, and since it is Mother's Day, um, this is about as much as we're going to say about Mother's Day, because it is the Lord's Day primarily. But a mother has that authority representing the father of the home who is out at work or whatever. The mother is in charge, and the authority of the mother carries much to the children. She has the responsibility to represent the husband and nurturing the children and, and the, the degrees of discipline that as couples have agreed on implementing those in the father's absence. Mother, motherhood is a very noble calling and highly commended in the Bible. Spurgeon gets it right when he says, there is never a babe dropped into a mother's bosom, but it brings care, labor, grief, and anxiety with it. What Spurgeon is saying there is it's not all, it's, you know, there's this grandiose picture of having children and they just, they, they, they're just going to live perfectly. They never need to be corrected. But motherhood is difficult and it is to be commended. And we're thankful for the great examples we have among us in this church of mothers who give of themselves in the training of their children. But there's a greater authority than that. There is an authority for each one of us that we have in our life, and that is the authority of Almighty God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who we will stand before on the last day. And if you will be saved, my dear friend, today, you must enter the kingdom of God. And to enter the kingdom of God, you must, what? Submit to his authority. And that's really what we're going to consider in our text. So, if you'll turn to Mark 11, verse 27, we're going to be reading there. They came up to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning amongst themselves, saying that if we say from heaven, he will say, well then why did we believe him? 
If we say from men, they were, they were afraid of the people, and everyone considered John to be a real prophet. To answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. And a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he was a slave, and they wounded him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send. A beloved son, he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. Vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's bow in prayer once again. Our Father in our heaven, we know that there are many things vying at this very moment. Pray, O oh God, that you would pour out your Spirit upon this Spirit that we have ears to hear, that our minds would be focused. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on the one speaking and that they would remember yourself even during this time. In Christ's name, amen. Having spent several months really on the vital, absolute necessity of discipleship, last week we began a new section in the book of Mark. Triumphal entry, the king has finally come. He comes into Jerusalem and he sees all this people being ripped off because he had to exchange a Roman coinage for the shekel of the sanctuary. And so they were charging huge amounts of extra money. The animals were sold for twice as much as what they would normally cost because they had to bring a lamb for the Passover feast. And, and this is what we call Passion Week of our Lord. One third of the four Gospels is given to this one week of our Lord. And so it, it bears, it, it just magnifies the necessity that we understand this. Passion Week is the crescendo of all the history of redemption planned in eternity past. And then we looked at that fig tree. Remember that fig tree that our Lord cursed because it had the leaves of profession, but that lacked fruit. And we, we drew the analogy that it's a striking symbol of, of even the Jews. They had this outward religiosity, but they were spiritually barren. Just as a leaf, leafy fig tree promises fruit, so too a temple filled with activity with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims in the area there, and yet, for mo in the most cases, insincerity. 
So what Mark does for us today, beginning in 1127, is he presents five disputes with the religious leaders. Five disputes that we'll consider over the next few weeks. We're going to look at the first two today. It's very similar to earlier in chapter 2 and 3. There were five disputes with the religious leaders, but that was up in Galilee. The difference is is that this is in Jerusalem, yea, even at the very temple of Almighty God. They are threatened, and so they come to him. The first two, the Sanhedrin, the two we'll consider today. Then the Pharisees come, then the Sadducees, then the scribes, really subsets of that Sanhedrin. So my purpose, my agenda is really that each of us would learn that we must submit to King Jesus and that we would rejoice in the gospel, the glorious gospel that is not just for Jews, not just for one ethnic group, but for all, the barrier wall being taken down. So let's first consider this uh, first section in the end of chapter 11. We see Christ's authority being challenged here. And I ask you, do you question the authority of Christ? Now, this takes place on Tuesday. You'll remember the triumphal entry was on Sunday. Mondays, when the overturning of the tables happened, the coins were flying, the animals were being driven out of the the Gentile court and so forth. And so this is Tuesday morning. They're, They're traveling to Jerusalem. Remember, they're staying in Bethany, about two miles to the east. And the text very clearly says, as he was walking into the temple. So it's not as though he came and was teaching for a while. They're ready. There's alarm in the city. Who is this man that came in and upset our city the day before? Maybe they met late into the evening, conspiring. If this man comes back, we have to challenge him. We need to question him. We can't allow the Passover feast to be destroyed by one man upsetting the people. They come, really, with a plot. They come with a question. Um, And remember, you you can picture this. It's almost as though, now remember, Harold revamped the temple. It's it's one of splendor. Not, you know, he's added on to the one that the exiles um, had built 400 BC or so. Columns 35 feet tall, just ornate everywhere. And so these porches that were there, Maybe he was still on the porch, maybe not even inside. We don't know, but they come very quickly to question him. They know something needs to be done with this Jesus who keeps claiming to have this authority. We are the ones with the authority. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, we are the ones. Now the Sanhedrin, as we mentioned, it's made up of the chief priests, the scribes, which would have been the lawyers, to interpret uh, God's word, and then the elders. And this would make a group of about 70 people. Now, they probably sent a delegation, not all 70 being there, but they were certainly there. And they need to trap him somehow. They need to somehow come up with a question that is going to allow the people to see that he's either being blasphemous or he's a lunatic. That's their agenda. That's what they have to do. And so they immediately question. Look in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Now, that these things, probably in the immediate context, refers to Monday, just the day before, the overturning of the temple, and, and you know, call, calling out. You can just look back there in verse um, 
17, and he began to teach and say, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And they conspired then how to destroy him. But I think there's more to it than just the, day be, the, the events of the day before. You remember early on, the Pharisees, there was conflicts back in chapter 2 when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic as he's let down through the roof. You remember that? And they were looking down with their long noses at the, who alone can forgive sin but God? Later, he's feasting with the tax collectors and, and having fellowship with them. He redefines the Sabbath at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 7, he really hits them hard with slamming their oral tradition and, and perverting the very law of God. Now, this question is vitally important because in the Mishnah, which was a Jewish code that would be completely codified about a century later, much of the things that are inside of that were in practice in Jesus' day. And it stated this, that if one would appeal to false authority in matters of religion, it would lead to capital punishment. So this is an important question that they're asking. By what authority and who gave you this authority? We know that this is in place because in 14, during the trials and the interrogation in chapter 14 and verse 63, Jesus says in verse 62, he's asked if he's the, the son of, he says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming, coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his robes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? He's already blasphemed. There's enough evidence right here to put him to death. We don't even need any more witnesses. Now, the word authority is exousia. It's, it's a very powerful word. It's used of God often. It, it, it means a state of control or, or to govern with might and power. Uh, another definition is the right to control or to command. Absolute power. And that's the question they're asking. Turn back to chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark with me. In verse 21... They came to Capernaum. He immediately called the fishermen. This is the first time, first recorded event of him going into the synagogue to teach. He goes in the synagogue to teach, and look at verse 22. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one, what? Having authority, not as the scribes. The scribes are the lawyers of the word. These are the ones that should have some authority. But there was something about the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ that carried with it this power, this authoritative tone that the people recognized, this is different. This isn't like the religious leaders we have. He is the great I am. He is the God man, as Rob will finish that up in our theology class, our men's theology class. He is the great I am. He is the one when he comes walking on the water when the disciples are terrified in the boat and he's walking on the water. They said, who is it? He says, it is I. Do not fear. The Greek structure is I am. Before Abraham was, I am. John 8 and verse 58. And all of this kind of recalls to that fulfillment from Daniel 7, which you're familiar with. Uh, he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So they come to challenge the authority of Christ. Secondly, notice with me, notice with me, Jesus wisely launches a counter question in verse 29. He says, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, rabbinical dialogues were often uh, answer, asking a question to, answering a question with a question was very common practice. And so that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. When he says, you answer me, I don't know if you notice, it's, set, it's, it's stated twice. It's actually an imperative. He commands them, I will ask you a question and you will answer me. <laughs> okay, it's an imperative. Was the baptism of John of God or man? Now, on the surface, we might think, of all the questions that Jesus could ask, what's the significance of that question? Why does he look back to John? John's already been beheaded, remember? His head's been brought on a platter uh, and all of this, and so he's already dead. So what's the significance of this question? I submit to you that there's great significance. First of all, Jesus doesn't do what the Pharisees would commonly do, appeal to the great rabbinical schools and the traditions, what was being taught. He asks a very simple about John, a very simple question about John. John was the messenger. He was the forerunner that was to come to pave the way for Christ. Isaiah 40, we had our call to worship at the end of the chapter, at the beginning of the chapter. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. It was at the very baptism of Jesus by John that the heavens were parted, that the Spirit descended like a dove, and God himself spoke from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. In a sense, the baptism of John inaugurated the exousia of Jesus, his earthly ministry where his authority would be much more clearly set forth. He always was the God-man, but in a sense, it, he paved the way for that. It is John himself that would say, he must increase, I must decrease. Remember they kept saying, are you the one, you know, the disciples, or should we wait for, should we look for another? He must increase, I must decrease. You see what he's doing here is he's getting them to make a decision about John because your answer about who the forerunner to Messiah, your answer to that will determine your answer of who you think Jesus Christ is. It's a very wise question. If they say from men, well, then it's fully explainable. You can explain it rationally, but if it's from heaven, then it's divinely inspired. And then let's consider what they do in the next three verses. Um, and, and we ask ourselves, too, do we seek to escape the demands of Jesus' authority? Right away, it says, they began reasoning amongst themselves. 
This word occurs seven times in Mark. It's always in the context of people seeking to evade the force of our Lord's words. It's used most often of the Pharisees. When Jesus forgave the sins in chapter 2, the word is used three times in that context, in 2.6 and twice in 2.8. It's the idea of kind of conferring and, and muttering and tra- I guess my microphone died here, so I'm using this. Um, it, it's the idea of conferring and, and conspiring and, and a, putting a thorough thoughtfulness into what is being said. So the Pharisees here shift to a strategy that will make themselves not look bad. And so that's what they're, that's what they're look, talking about. Again, the fear of the people is, again, going to sway their decision. And that's the third time we're told since the triumphal entry that they feared the crowds because of the popularity of Jesus. In verse 32, it says very clearly, the, the last half of the verse, for everyone, some versions say all, all considered John to have been a real prophet. So if they say for men, then they're undermining that. And in verse 33, it says, Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And notice what Jesus says. He said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority. The force of these words don't jump off the page as much as when he says, truly I say to you, it's like yes and amen. When when he's about to say something that we say we should pay special attention to. This is the same phrase in the Greek with the negative put in front of it. Neither will I tell you. The authority of Christ has been displayed, and even in the gospel of the the first words recorded in Mark, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. We see Jesus doing what Solomon would write in Proverbs 26, don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he will not be wise in his own eyes. So you too, you can't be neutral. You can't just say, I might submit to God someday. You've heard the demand. Repent, believe the gospel. Those are the words of Christ. You must submit to his authority. Furthermore, the idea of being autonomous that, hey, hey, this is America. I'm my own person. I mean, you know, I can do whatever I want. That's blown out of the water. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. A proper response to the king's authority involves nothing less than submission to his authority. The authority of Jesus is, in fact, the very authority of God. Jesus has said many times, I and the Father are one. I've come from the Father to do his will. My meat and my drink is to accomplish what he has sent me to do. Fanny Crosby gets it right in her simple hymn, Perfect Submission, All is at Rest, I and my Savior and happy and blessed, watching and waiting and looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. It's amazing that someone that was blind from six weeks old in so many of her hymns has words that have to do with looking and seeing. Because she could see through the eye of faith the beauty of the glory of the gospel of her Lord Jesus Christ. 
And there's a sweetness and submission when we understand the compassion of a God that would send a Savior to die and to spill his blood on our behalf. And so how can she say such a thing here? Looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Submission the right way will bring about such a proper response of joy overflowing. So we see the religious leaders, first of all, come and challenge the authority. And this is connected with it, very same context. It flows right into this parable of the vine growers. So we're going to consider that. And he tells this to actually target the Sanhedrin who he had just been talking to, this dialogue. This is actually more of a monologue. It's Jesus telling this, and it is directed towards them. This parable is meant to disclose, not obscure. You'll remember back in chapter 4, he says about the parables, he was saying to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, get everything in parables. Well, this is different. This is not meant to conceal. This is meant to be very, very plain so that even you young ones can actually get this. Okay? It's meant to be very simple, and I hope I don't complicate it too much <laughs> along the way. The leaders have challenged Jesus publicly. We know not how many hundreds were there in the area there, but there was a lot. There's a lot of activity going on in the temple during Passover week and around the temple and in Jerusalem in general. And so they get exposed publicly. Look at verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a small wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers, and he went on a journey. This idea of an owner of land actually leasing out the land, a farmland, or in this case a vineyard, to others it was actually a very common practice in the first century um, lots of extra biblical evidence to support that but it's really no different than today we've got thousands of avocado groves and orange groves and I've, I know several who own those and and they lease it out they don't they're not out there picking the fruit they just they hire somebody that comes in to do it for them and they make some profit off of that so it's pretty common profit pretty com- pretty profit of the common practice Back to uh, Isaiah 5, if you'll just flip there really quick with me. Jesus is drawing from Old Testament metaphors, and uh, this Isaiah 5 is probably one of the best known, along with uh, the Ulam and Nathan when he confronts David. These are probably the the two most well-known parables in the Old Testament. But in verse 2, well, he talks about, first of all, let me sing in verse 1, now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stone, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out the wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones or wild grapes, grapes that are not conducive for a good fruit. That's the, that's the background. That's the context that I think Jesus is drawing from. A vineyard is supposed to produce wine and fruit. This has the wall around it. it they're choice vines. It had the vat. It had the press. It had everything going for it. This should have been producing good wine, good fruit, and yet they, the owner gets nothing in return. 
Jeremiah 2, again, several allusions to this theme. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into degenerate shoots of a foreign wine? The vineyard is the Lord's. Let's consider the ingredients. Okay, the ingredients. The vineyard is a picture of Israel or God's people. Okay, God's elect nation. The vine growers are the religious rulers. Okay, they're the ones that are there tending to the land, the elect nation that God has provided. There's some debate about the wall, but I, I don't think it has to be that hard. It could be a picture of God giving his law to his people. That's a parameters going around, but also God's sovereign protection of this nation. You'll remember way back before the Red Sea parted, God was sovereignly protecting that nation, brought them out of bondage, protected them all through the wilderness journeys, brought them into the promised land. God had his protection, his sovereign protection over his people. The vat is an indication that it's intended to bear fruit. The servant or the slaves, depending on your translation, the, the same idea. The, this is a picture of all the faithful prophets that God has sent to Israel. The son, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ. And at the end, we'll see that the others are a picture of the Gentiles. That's the ingredients. Now we're going to walk through it. The religious leaders not only had hindered their nation's purpose, but they also killed those that were trying to fulfill it. They were jealous and possessive, and they ignored the welfare of the people who they were supposed to be ushering and bringing and pointing to Almighty God. Authority had gone to their head. They had a zeal without knowledge, and Paul speaks of this twice in Romans, more than twice, but here's two examples. Romans 3.1, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were, notice, entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jew was entrusted with the oracles of God, given the law of God, the will of God. All of that was made, made clear, so the Jew has some advantage. Later in chapter 9, he says, speaking of all these privileges, who are Israelites, who belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Verses 2 to 5, do you reject the preachers and servants of God? Again, there's, there's modern day parallels. It doesn't take much to par parallel this to modern day. So the owner sends a slave to receive some of the produce. The owner should be the first to receive some of the produce, right? And so they send, he sends a slave in verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him out empty-handed. He's like, we're not giving you anything. Beat him, sent him out. Okay? Verse 4, look again. And then they sent, or then he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. The idea of a wound to the head and then treated shamefully. Uh, one can only imagine what that perversion may have been like. And then in verse 5, and they sent another, and one they killed and with many others, beating some and killing others. We don't know how many slaves, servants, that, that were sent in this parable, 
But we know there was many righteous prophets that were sent to Israel. And some did incur death. Many were beaten. Jeremiah falsely treated for years and years through his ministry. Stephen, as he's about to be martyred, is the first Christian martyr in Acts 7, verse 52. He tells the Jews, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Name me one. (laughs) They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So these vine growers, these wicked tenants who are here, they pay their rent, but it's in blows and beatings and in murder. Jeremiah 7, another allusion, since the day that your fathers came from the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants and prophets daily rising early and sending them, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck and they did more evil than their fathers. Abusing of these servants. And, and God, God has his servants today. He's established the local church. We're going to talk about the church, but there are those who go out with authority under the local church as missionaries. There are those who are, who are preachers. There are elders. There are under-shepherds under Christ. And maybe we can abuse them. Maybe not with blows. Maybe not with murder. But how about with gossip and slander? That's treating shamefully. Maybe we can ignore the pleas of our conscience. It's something that we hear from a servant of God, that we don't physically beat them up, but but in our conscience we seek to suppress the truth. We, We have a desensitized conscience to shrink down conviction. You heard of the man who goes to the doctor and he says, I've been doing something very bad, doctor, and my conscience is troubling me. He complained, and the doctor said, well, do you want me to give you something to strengthen your willpower? And the man says, well, no. I was thinking you can give me something to weaken my conscience. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, he's not concerned about the, the issue that, that's going on. And sometimes we can do that with our sin. That, that, that we just, well, I just wish my conscience wasn't pricking me so much, you know? I don't care. I cherish the sin. I don't want to, you know, but I just wish my conscience wouldn't bother me so much. What folly. Many servants. And think of through your Christian life, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, all those that have come to you to visit you in the hospital, to that you've sat under their ministries, moving around and all of that different stuff, all of those that have impacted your life for good. We are to respect, honor, pray for those. At the end of the Hall of Faith, of course, in Hebrews 11, it says, Others experienced mockings and scourgings, and yes, also chains and imprisonment, and they were stoned, and they were, they were sawn in two, and they were tempted, and they were put to death with the sword, and they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. So the flip side of this is that if you are a servant of God, expect suffering, expect persecution. You have no guarantee that you're going to have this, whatever cartoon it is, it has a little bubble, you know, perfectly placed around you. 
God sovereignly allows these things to happen. Is his love withdrawn? No. It is a wonder as we read this up through verse 5. What does this tell us about the landowner? Long-suffering, patient. I mean, if we were the landowner, maybe after the second or third, third slave, we'd bring in the reinforcements, call in the SWAT team or whatever, you know. Uh, but such is the long-suffering of God and his patience. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Sometimes we can look at God and wonder, why are you not answering? Why am I praying for this again and again and again and again? The Lord is not slow. He is patient, a beautiful picture of patience. He doesn't give us what our sins deserve. I read this week of a wealthy tobacco grower from the 1800s in Virginia, and he found one of his slaves taking a break, reading a Bible, and uh, chastised him for it, reproved him. You're neglecting your work. I don't want to see you do it again. He was caught a short time later doing the same thing, so he ordered the slave to be whipped. And typically this would be on a tree outside but so the other slaves or their house could actually hear this and it would be an example to them. Well, out of curiosity, the owner, the tobacco grower, went near his house after this and wanted to hear this man pray. He heard a poor black slave imploring Almighty God to forgive the injustice of his master and to bring conviction. God brought immediate remorse this man changed his life, he liberated his slaves, and he used his wealth in the service of others. What a beautiful example of one that just, you know, where there's conviction of sin and, and the prayers of, that we should expect persecution. And, and we should pray for our persecutors. And here's an example of one that prayed for a persecutor and became saved. You might think of how many prayers went up for John Newton before his conversion in his late 30s. As you know, he drove slave ships and transported them, the thousands of slaves under his care. Well, moving on, verses 6 to 8. Do you reject Christ? Look in verse 6. And this is beautiful how Jesus is telling us. It's, it's just building. It's coming to the crescendo now. But he had one more to send, a beloved son, to send him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. As a last resort, the owner sends his son. Is that not God's eternal plan? Has he sent the Lord Jesus Christ? John, John the Baptist pointed. He was a forerunner of Christ. All the prophets before pointed to the coming of Christ. Last of all, he sends his son. Thinking surely they will respect them, but of course, it's the exact opposite. They wickedly plot and murder. Some might read this and ask, what's wrong with this landowner? I mean, how many dead slaves do you already have, and now you're going to send your son? <laughs> like, hired 
you know, somebody off the streets or something, you know, you're sending your own son. But again, this is a picture of the depth of the love of God. Steve preached this text a couple weeks ago, 1 John 4. By this, the love of God is manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, the son represents the father's legal claim, but also the father's compassion. He sent, the word is the idea of a divine commission. The son differs from the slaves in many ways. They are many, he is unique. They are hirelings, he is the heir. Above all, this son is the one that is beloved. Calls up the, thinking back to Abraham and Isaac, God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. The tenants are no longer content with fruit. They want the land as well. What a picture of a, the love of God. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the invitation goes to you to look to Christ. The psalmist at the end of Psalm 2 says, do homage, or the old King James, kiss the son, that he not become air angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all those that take refuge in him. Verses 9 to 12, very briefly, the Jews' rejection paves the way for the Gentiles, and that's really the point of this, that, that those readers are being removed, being destroyed. It says, and the owner of that vineyard, what will he do? He will come and destroy those vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Others, a picture of the Gentiles. This oft-repeated verse from uh, Psalm 118, have you not read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The very son that is rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. He is the one that everything is built upon. I believe it's repeated five or six times in our New Testament. Romans 9, 1 Peter 2, here before us. But he's going to come and he destroys those vine growers. It means absolute ruin and destruction. Psalm 68, surely God will scatter the head of his enemies. It's used in Acts 4. He is the stone which the builders rejected. The builders which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The cornerstone was the one that would be used as the base that everything else would shoot off of to make it square, to make it sturdy. Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet, prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. It's a spiritual temple. It's a temple made of you and I, Jew and Gentile. The barrier wall has been torn down earlier in Ephesians 2. It's a glorious picture of this gospel now going to the Gentiles. And even, even earlier when he's in the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For the nations. 
because it was in the Gentile court, that outer, the fourth outer court, where all this buying and selling was taking place. And he realized the greater purpose of God that the gospel was to go to the nations. We read in Ephesians 3, speaking of this mystery, I don't have time to read the broader context, but Paul says this mystery of Christ, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promises of Christ through the gospel. Christ loves his church. It is his bride. It is the one that he spilt his own blood for. He has purchased her. The church is his prized possession. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, literally instead of her. He died in our place as a substitute, purchasing our salvation. But then it goes on so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her and washed her with the water of the word. There's your application, husbands, on Mother's Day. Go home and do this to your wife. Shepherd your wife. Love your wife. But notice, he loves the church not only that he spills his blood and gives himself a life, a ransom for many, but that he also sanctifies so that we would grow. The Lord uses many ways for this, primarily the means of grace. The gathering together with the people of God, feasting on Christ by faith through the supper. These types of things are means of grace by which we grow and he conforms us into the image of Christ. In verse 12, And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. That's actually the third time that they fear the people and they go away. But again, the idea that they were seeking to seize, it's the idea of conniving, conspiring. When will we have the opportune time to finally put this man to death? So the father's vineyard is not destroyed he doesn't order but burn the vineyard. No, there's new, vine, there's new tenants that come in as the Gentiles enter in. Very quickly, do you submit to the authority of Christ? You've heard King Jesus and his authority presented to you today. Do you submit to him? Secondly, suffering is part of the Christian life. All of these slaves and even the son are a picture of faithful servants of God. We should expect suffering. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every sufferer who bears pain or slander or loss or or even just unkindness for Christ's sake is filling up the amount of suffering which is necessary in bringing together the whole body of Christ and the building up of his elect church. Of course, the ultimate act of suffering was what Christ went through and we're getting to that in just a couple of chapters and from this point it was only a couple days later three days later that they would fulfill their wish to destroy him but this was all in the great unfolding of God's plan this is all part of his sovereign degree from eternity past and the covenant of redemption that creating a people and electing a people and sending the son. This is all in fulfillment of that. 
And if you're here today and you have not submitted to the authority of Christ, I beg you to come to him. On the last day, you will stand before him. Come to him now. Admit your sinfulness. Look to Christ as your substitute. That means you don't need your suitcase of good works. All you need is simple faith and crying out for mercy. I can't save myself. Save me, Lord. Save me. And he will save you. The gospel is a glorious gospel. It is his work that has accomplished our salvation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and allowing us this time to be together. We thank you for your word, which does not return void. And we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all for which you have sent it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see this glorious gospel that now has been given and is wide open for the Gentiles. And Lord, that we would respond, our response would be one of joyful submission to King Jesus. We thank you that you have done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Oh Lord, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.